welcome to another episode of the Sweat Elite podcast, where we interview elite athletes, professional coaches, sports scientists, and thought leaders in the sport of running, with the goal of providing listeners of the podcast with training information, tips, strategies, and stories from our guests. This week, our guest is Ultra Runner of the Year, named by Ultra Running Magazine for the last four years straight, 2016 through 2019, Jim Wormsley. Jim's resume is enormous, so I'll touch on just the highlights here in the intro before I transition to the interview my colleague Tate Herbst did with Jim a couple of weeks back over Skype. Jim is the course record holder for some of the most competitive ultra running events in the world, including the Western States 100 Mile, Tarawera Ultra Marathon in New Zealand, and the Lake Sonoma 50. Jim has blazed a unique trail over the past few years, reaching the pinnacle of ultra running and amassing a cult following in the process. All of Jim's running is uploaded to Strava, where over 60,000 followers ogle at the monster runs, popping up on their feed with alarming regularity. But his latest undertaking was turning his attention to the marathon. There was a lot of hype surrounding Jim in the lead-up to the USA Olympic trials in Atlanta on the last day of February, where he made his marathon debut. Very thankful to have Jim come onto the podcast and my colleague Tate sat down with Jim a couple of weeks back over a Skype call and discussed the motivations and process behind this transition to the marathon, among many other aspects of his life in Flagstaff, Arizona, including plenty of talk about his training and his path into professional ultra running. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jim Wormsley. Welcome to the Sweat Elite podcast. This morning, our guest is ultra runner Jim Wormsley, 50-mile world record holder, two-time Western States champion and record holder, and who recently made his marathon debut at the Olympic trials. So, Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. I'm glad you made some time to come and have a chat today. I think a good point for us to start would be talking about your journey to the Olympic trials. I mean, there's so much that I want to get into today with your ultra running background and how you came to be doing all of these events. But I think a really interesting point to start on is how, or just your journey to the trials. Um, yeah, so I think it started a while back and kind of just as an idea to basically link up as if I'm going to get ready for um, the goal was going to be to lead up towards comrades to basically link in a full effort towards a marathon. And it lines up in 2020 uh, or did line up theoretically um, to do a marathon in February and then followed up a couple months later with a fast 56 miles or 90 K down in South Africa. So um, the whole training block was really beneficial and um as far as kind of getting myself out on the track or the road and doing just quality intervals and really pushing my myself again to get back into leg speed workouts that even compared to college aren't really leg speed workouts but compared to what I do for ultra running um that stuff doesn't quite come back right away so um yeah, I guess looking at it, it started as an idea of just um, a really important beneficial block to do. And um, yeah, it was it was interesting. 
Yeah, and I mean, you ran your debut in 2.15.05, is that correct? About that, yeah, yeah. Okay, and how is that performance in terms of what you were hoping for? Uh, it wasn't what I was hoping for. Um, I think a lot of things about it wasn't what I was hoping for as far as like um, kind of feeling as good as I think I could have felt showing up on race day um, and then just in the moment wanting to push harder and harder even when I fell off the pack and stuff. I, I don't know if the, the right motivation was there to just keep pushing in the marathon. Um, part of that's also probably so many people in that race come in with these like Cinderella hopes to be somewhat in the hope and you just see like guys not only just the front guys just absolutely just crush away you still have a pack of guys between you and them and it's uh yeah you kind of get lulled into no man's land and um it was pretty windy late in the race um that played a bit of a factor when I think you're by yourself and and not clicking uh, as much as you were in the beginning of the race. So um, for me personally, I think there is a bit of disappointment with it. However, I think overall the, the process and um, of getting ready for that and doing the race and um, there's a lot of positives in the overall um, of just committing towards doing a marathon and doing it um, and trying to have some fun by making the debut at the marathon trials was exciting. But um, yeah, it, I don't really feel like it ended up clicking on race day. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's still an impressive debut and you said that you felt that you maybe didn't quite have the right motivation on the race day um what was your motivation for doing this i mean coming from your background of you, you ran track in college but then skipped over the road scene essentially and went straight to ultras and have had some incredible successes there uh and then like you said your debut was at the trial so what i want to get into as well is your choice to qualify with the half marathon which is a very unconventional step for someone with your background. Um, so, yeah, what, what was your motivation for attempting the trials and then qualifying with the half marathon as well? Yeah, so um, I guess doing it with the half marathon, I just felt like showed myself and maybe others that maybe at least the leg speed-wise um, I could have a chance in running a full marathon somewhat close to that. Um, because if, I mean, I guess I qualified first in a two or a, a 104 um, in January in Houston in like 2019. And then uh, followed it up in the build up towards this and ran something probably equivalent to 103 low. Um, probably safe to say at least 103.10, which was a, a, a lot better step forward and kind of meant that some leg speed had been gained in the last year um, despite still doing full season of ultra running um, so it, it left me kind of hopeful of uh, what I could potentially do in the marathon and I think that was almost part of the point was just to think and to hope that um, I could potentially have a chance 
at competing for a top three spot at the Olympics. And then it also goes to um, why I was doing the Olympic trials is basically why everybody else was there too. If, uh, once every four years, you get to throw your hat in the ring and you never really know um, if it's going to be your like just magical day and you pull something out. But um, it ended up being more of an average day and and that that didn't put me too high in position. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it's really commendable that you're willing to, you know, so often go out there and do things where you're, you know, there is a chance that you won't do as well as you hope for. And you, you've been quite vocal in, you know, putting yourself out there in the past and saying what you want to do. And that hasn't always come about for like, I know, um, I know your story quite well, but I think a lot of people who are listening might not have heard so much about it. But for example, in the Western states, your first attempt, you were talking about getting the record and um, were doing really well with that until right at the end. But I, yeah, I think the way you put yourself out there is something that's really commendable. Um, well, so Yeah. I would say thanks, um, but I would say it all just comes about of like people like asking direct questions to me every now and then, and I just try to answer them honestly, and it ends up putting you out there a bit, but um, it's not really hiding any of my goals. Like a goal of the Olympic trials was to make the team. I fell short of it, but at the same time, like uh, I feel like I'm a more well-rounded athlete and ultra runner now than I was five months ago. So um there's a lot of tools i can use in the upcoming year hopefully yeah so could you tell us a little bit about i mean you, all your training is logged on strava and that's something that i think a lot of people really appreciate getting to follow in follow along on your journey but could you tell the listeners about what that block leading into the marathon trials looks like yeah so um I had an idea to try to do a couple weeks. I think the original log on paper I had building up towards 180 miles for three weeks in a row. Um, and then I kind of started doing the math and I was like, oh, that's pretty close to 300K a week, which is 186 miles a week. Um, and I'd built up to 175 miles uh, and I was going to do a 200 mile or the, the 300K week, um, the following week, and more or less, that was one of the first kind of uh, interesting stagger, like stagger points I had in the training block because I started doing the math because I was supposed to do the half marathon in January. And I was like feeling just my legs get, it felt like I was getting slower even though I felt really strong. But um, I'm like, there's no way I could do a half marathon in three weeks if I just push through this. and the holidays, um, I had lots of family in town, so just trying to balance stress with logging that many miles um, wasn't quite going well, so I kind of decided to basically just repeat another week of 175 miles, so I, my base got up to two weeks of 175, um, which is probably upper 200k for a week, but it was all long, slow running, um, nothing really too fast uh just tried to focus on making sure i was getting in strides after every run basically was like just the hidden speed 
And then, um, yeah, I ended up cutting down to three weeks of throwing in two speed sessions twice a week. Uh, so like almost three or four speed sessions or track sessions um, to get ready for a half marathon and kind of was jokingly saying that I'm cramming for a half marathon because it kind of snuck up on me. Um, but then the half marathon I ran was in Phoenix and it went overall pretty well. Um, I think the only two other Americans in the race that beat me was Brian Schrader, who actually ended up leading like the first 13 miles of the trials. Um, and I think he must have gone through in like 64 flat on that course or faster, uh, which is really impressive. And then uh, Matt McDonald, who ended up um, running with the leaders pretty late as well. And both, uh, well, I guess Brian stayed and ended up as well. But um, I think both showed really good fitness throughout the block and even on race day. Um, but then it, I had about six weeks of trying to figure out the balance of speed plus enough endurance to try to dial in kind of marathon specific training. Um, and one thing I tried to keep into my uh, weekly schedule was about a 30 to about 50k um, long run every Saturday. Um, and a couple of those I hit really well. And also a couple of those I got really tired from um, as well. Uh, so I think uh, one that I regret is probably three weeks before I, I did a trail race as a long run and it was a 50k trail race and uh, had over 2000 feet of climbing, uh, probably 600 meters or so. But uh, did it in about 2.49. It was a little short. So I think 50K and about 2.52 on trail. Um, and kind of ended up hitting a really tired patch the next few days after that. So then what I decided to do is keep a couple of my quality workouts all the way up until a week before the race to try to string together some confidence with things. And um so I would say I, I didn't quite thread the needle. I, I think part of not having as much motivation as I wanted on race day was maybe in some spots overreaching a little. I think that can play a big factor of when things get hard in races to keep pushing and be hungry for, for more and more and more and really having a good day is, I mean, it's the kind of old saying of better to be undertrained than overtrained of, uh, yeah, freshness over fitness, and a little bit of that's true, um, I think, especially in the longer races. Mm. Yeah, some of those long runs that you were logging every week were just, I was so shocked every time I'd see them. I think it was, yeah, like three, you know, up to 50Ks in three minutes, 27 per K or something like that. Uh, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that you were pretty fatigued at the end of a block like that. Um, what kind of speed work were you doing in the lead up to the marathon? Like, what were those sessions looking like? So before the half marathon, I, I kind of let myself get on the track. And whether it was um, 10 by a K or uh, a workout I really like is just six by a mile. And I think my, my main half marathon workout I ended up doing on the road, but um, was four by two mile um, with like 
90 second rest um is and it went okay it didn't quite go great um but before the half marathon i allowed myself to get on the track a lot more um because more or less i wanted to see fast times on the watch and the track really allows you to feel very good flow it doesn't beat you up as much as any basically any road route you can go choose um hitting the road by yourself is a lot is a little bit harder um in my opinion and you get a little even just a couple meters of undulation uh makes a bit of a difference when you're trying to hit splits that are right at kind of where your capacity is so before the half marathon i was trying to stay on the track a bit more to get the leg speed up and almost my confidence with running the speed a little higher and then the idea after that was to do most of my speed workout down in Camp Verde on uh, either a three-mile loop or a 1K loop down at 3,000 feet. And um, it, it has just a little more undulation. And then with the long runs I was doing, I was trying to make sure they had quite a bit of climbing and at least or more than the amount of climbing per mile than the Atlanta course had on it. And the Atlanta course for a traditional marathon was pretty hilly compared to most. It's It had maybe 100 meters more climbing and descending than New York marathon. Um, so New York is not necessarily the fastest course out there. So um, that's a little perspective of the course. Yeah, and to run 215 on that hilly course with the wind is, it's still really impressive. Uh, looking back on this whole lead up to the trials and then your performance there, what are you most proud of? I think probably the half marathon was the best, even though I still walked away from the half. Like, really, I really like that distance. I think it's such a fun distance and walking away going like, there's a lot more um, if I were to focus on that to to get a faster half marathon time. And I always think half marathon times are fun and they're kind of sexy, but um, at the end of the day, they're kind of pointless because it's just an in-between event that doesn't get you anywhere in the Olympics. So um, it's just kind of a training tool, but at the same time, so is the marathon for the most part for what I'm doing. So um, I think, the half marathon getting down to although so I say I got down to low 63 it's because I ran 62.13 officially on the course but it was like 285 meters short because there was a little out and back section that they didn't put the cone far enough out and like it kind of screws up when you're closing in on the last mile or two you're like looking at your watch you're like what is something's weird my watch must be funky and then you kind of see the finish line thing and you just like walk through the line of like something's short like this just doesn't make sense um so it it was a little bit of a weird half marathon um but it would have equated to probably 103.0 or 103.10 at the slowest um and for an ultra guy that's pretty good uh leg speed for dipping into that and not trying to really specifically train for it and I guess I it makes me also curious because um the training before that was volume based mostly roads um little bit of hills but 
getting up to 175 mile weeks and then just trying to cut it down so quickly with some speed workouts like that was, it's a bit interesting. Um, something like that kind of sparks my interest when in ultra running, we tend to do more races per year than marathoners than like most marathon professional marathoners right now are peaking for two marathons a year. Um, you see some people trying to figure out ways to loop in more, but for ultra running, I would say it's more about finding an ebb and flow of, uh, I, I kind of like an eight week cycle, um, eight to 10 weeks. And so you don't get as long of a focused training block as you do for the marathon. So for this marathon block, I think I had about 14 weeks and even I've talked about it with some of my ultra running friends and it's just in 14 weeks, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble because you're just really riding the line for a long time. And it's one of the hardest parts about the marathon is because you're, I think you're stressing so many different systems to really fire at a really cool, but really unique event that's still got so much endurance, but at an elite level still has so much speed, um, where in ultra running, um, at least not yet. The speed's not quite the same. Um, I don't know if it can be or will be. Uh, it's interesting to kind of think about of like how fast could, whether it's 50 miles or a hundred K sort of race go. Um, and it's pretty disgusting to think about like if like what right now is a six hour race is going to turn into a five hour race, but you're still hammering out like what people are doing for a marathon for five hours straight. Um, yeah, it's pretty difficult. And then, then, then it's all ultra running is all about extrapolation to further and further and further distances. So then you go to a hundred miles, 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, six days. Then, then you get into Appalachian trail, Pacific trail. Like it just keeps going as, as far as you want to make things or, whether it's um, Pete Kosselnick running across the U.S. in like I think 68 days or something, like when he's logging, I think he averaged like 72 miles a day. It's just huge numbers, um, and it's yeah, it, it's a bit interesting. And I think there's so much variation in the entire sport that is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch how your preparation for different races varies. I mean, you're, you are one of the guys who is pushing the envelope with bringing that higher level of speed into these really long races. And seeing you at Western States over the last few years has been really cool. Um, you, you broke the course record on your third attempt in 2018 and then last year in 2019, you broke that again by 21 minutes, I believe. Yeah, we got uh, a little bit of favorable weather comparatively. I think that 2018 was pretty cool cause it was still a really hot year. Um, so to break the record on that, like a, a proper Western States year is pretty cool. Whereas... 2019 um i think it's more in a time zone that was going to be very difficult to touch but uh it, it goes to favorable conditions play a lot on that course okay 
Uh, and how does the build-up to a race like that vary from what you were speaking about in the build-up to the marathon? Um, it's a lot more enjoyable, I guess would be the simple way to do it. I think one of the biggest takeaways with the marathon, and especially not being on uh, some sort of like marathon pro team, um, I think it would be really important to find a training group to be with if I wanted to regularly do the marathon. Um, even the 100k, 50 mile, 100k road stuff for ultra running, I think overlaps a lot with the marathon. Um, you're still having to hit some really fast long runs, but Western States, uh, I'm training almost exclusively on like single track trails, which are just a lot slower going for the most part. Um, and I'm, I'm keeping track and I have weekly goals of the amount of vertical climbing and descending I'm trying to do every week. So, um, that's probably the biggest difference. Um, there's not weekly workouts uh, that I'll do. I'll probably do two to three speed sessions, which will be maybe like five. Like a classic one that I've done a couple times is something really easy, but it's a five by five mile with three minute rest at 7,000 feet. Um, and just do it in five minute pace and that's about it. Um, it's just about improving efficiency and economy a little bit right before race day. Um, less about getting some sort of benefit from the workout. Uh, I think you need to take away a lot more experience in your training from um, dealing with the heat to being on your feet that long per day and then just building your aerobic base. I think uh, play a lot bigger dividends and it's almost why I think you can see a lot of people that almost take the sport, quote unquote, more casually, um, not as many workouts, but they're just out logging tons of miles on the trails and you come in and you have pretty good success in ultra running uh, a bit differently because sometimes speed and, and being fast just gets you into trouble um, when you're in such of a, a long race because you get impatient and all of a sudden you start just clicking some miles and, and even my 50 mile world record was an example of probably miles 25 to 35. I started clicking um, about 525, 530 pace for those middle 10 miles and it felt really good. My legs started feeling good to stretch them out a little bit after feeling like I held back for the first basically marathon a bit. And then um, I would say in retrospect, I lost patience there and I should have stuck to a more reasonable pace and um, basically miles 40 to 50 as the temperature in Sacramento in May got a lot hotter. Um, I started paying it back and just holding on the six minute pace the last couple of miles was really difficult. So um, patience is uh, really important. <laughs> and it, how does patience play into the recovery process? I mean, have you found that a race like Western States, where it, it is 100 miles, it, it takes for just over 14 hours for you, how, how does the recovery of that compare to something like what you've just done in the marathon? Yeah, the marathon, I think, um, 
I mean, you're still getting in really hard miles on the road, but for the most part, um, from the race itself, I think you recover pretty quickly, but you look at the whole training block, that's probably where you need to recover the most from, um, is if you're really flirting with the red line, uh, the marathon block, I think is pretty tough. Uh, but the hundred mile event in itself, um, I think you're just depleting your body for so long and you just keep digging when there's nothing left that, um, yeah, it, it can take a while. I think you just kind of got to get out the door. And I mean, I've even had days where I wanted to go run after Western States and it ends up being just like a two mile walk. And it's like, yeah, that's what I got about today. Like <laughs> there's not much more in the tank. And, but I think continuing to figure out some way to move and pump your blood a bit after races, whether it's a marathon or Western States, it, it's important to the overall recovery process and getting back faster. Um, and then I didn't really push anything too quickly after the marathon because I knew I had a bit of time. And then with kind of the pandemic crisis, uh, you realize you have even more time probably. So, um, yeah, right now I'm just kind of hedging my bets and finding a more enjoyable volume of training that is a bit more fun. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, right now is the perfect time to just yeah, cut back a bit and see where it takes you. Uh, I've been seeing you putting up some riding on Zwift uh, on Strava on the bike. Uh, and one question I have is, you know, you do log a lot of your training on Strava. Uh, are you doing much cross training or weight training that we aren't seeing on there? Um, yeah, actually, I think it's almost a pet peeve when I see people log 20 minutes of core on Strava of like, no one cares if you did 20 sit-ups, like it doesn't matter. Uh, I, But I'm also really bad at that stuff and just think it's... Um, for what I do, I don't think it's important and it doesn't make me mentally stronger on race day when I need it. I think um, a lot of my philosophy has been if you enjoy that stuff, then go do it. But if you don't enjoy it, don't force it because it makes, especially as running is a job, like it makes your job suck. And I just like doing the fun parts of the job, not the what I think is a little less efficient parts of the job. So in general, I try to embrace what I like doing, which is usually volume based and then cut out some of the stuff that I don't really like doing. And it, like, since even back in my college days, I, I haven't enjoyed going to the gym um, to lift weights or do strength stuff. Um, it makes me really sore, <laughs> which affects my running a lot. Um, but I guess the exercises I do, um, pretty much every night I'm doing toe crawls while I'm brushing my teeth and then I'm doing eccentric calf raises because I, I always have like probably some level of aggravated Achilles stuff going on. Um, and both of those things when I'm doing them regularly at night, like every night, uh, really helps me the next day. Um, so I don't really consider that. Uh, strength work too much it's just I for me it's probably necessary uh, routine maintenance but um, outside of that um, 
yeah, I, I've been trying to build back up to as the race season's kind of on hold indefinitely. Um, I, I enjoy cycling a bit, so I want to build back up towards getting in some volume on the bike and balancing that with some running. Um, and anything else would probably be uh, the, getting in the sauna for 30 minutes a couple times a week. I'm trying to regularly do that. I think just shifting towards summer weather, that one helps you adjust to the warmer days and go and exploring with a little less water. Yeah, and is, is the sauna something, or s- saunering or heat training, is that something that you've worked on in the lead up to races like Western States? Yeah, so last year I used it as a tool to kind of stay in Flagstaff and still get in heat training. So um, that's about when I got it uh, was about a year ago. So that was the only hot race I've used it for. Um, In prior Western States buildups, I'm usually driving a lot more to go do training. So whether that's driving a couple hours south down to Phoenix or um, even some hot days, you can still go down to Sedona and get a good hot day Um, or driving to the Grand Canyon and running through the bottom of the Grand Canyon gets really hot. And the nice part about that too, is there's a Creek so you can practice just like Western States. It's really important to, when you see a Creek, just like dive straight into it (laughs) Um, because like you just want to stay as wet as possible all day long. Um, it's really important to your heat management. So, um, running in the Grand Canyon is a really cool, really good kind of training tool because you can practice just getting in the Creek out of the Creek running again with soaking wet shoes and then getting in the Creek when you're dry and then getting back out and, uh, really reading that temperature gauge for your body. Cause once you kind of overcook your body temperature, um, it's hard to get yourself out of that on race day. Yeah, uh, and I think you raise a few interesting points, but uh, a lot of the listeners probably aren't too familiar with what Western states actually uh, actually involves. So could you talk us through what race day there looks like? Yeah, so Western states is um, one of the more prestigious, one of the top prestigious uh, ultras in the world. Um, and then in the U.S., it's very U.S. centric. So in U.S. ultra running, um, probably a month. It's like the only U.S. race where for a month long, people are just talking about it in the ultra world. So it gets a lot of hype, a lot of attention. And then on race day, there's tons of people that just travel out to the race and they spectate. And um, lots of people are following from all over. There's really good live coverage and updates. And ultras in general are kind of exciting um, when there's good tracking going along because you'll see everybody's positions as they come through aid stations and then you'll see projected times for the next aid station and it can be like an hour or two hours. So like you go do something else and you come back to it and like, oh, where are they at? And like so-and-so didn't show up. So it's kind of a fun little uh, all-day event to follow on Twitter as well. But um Western State starts in Tahoe, California, and runs to Auburn, California. So it's a net downhill race of about 5,000 feet. Um, it starts at 6,700 feet. You climb up to escarpment in the very beginning of the race, and then from there, um, you, you end up going through uh, a high country for the first 50K, 
So it's probably broken up in like three 50K sections about, but the first 50K, you can get a lot of snow, mud. Uh, it's at high altitude around seven, six, 7,000 feet. And then the middle section is called the canyons. Um, and you start going from like six or 5,000 feet down to a uh, thousand feet and you get really hot canyons and you do about three or four really big canyons that starts adding a lot of climbing on your legs and then the last third is going to be relatively flat but it'll be um, closest to Auburn and it runs along a river and stuff but um, it's just pretty much scorching hot down at the bottom there and uh, a lot of people get beat up by heat uh, the downhill running I think overall it's got about 17, 18,000 feet of climbing and 22, 23,000 feet of descending. Um, mixed between fire ridge and single track trails. Um, and it's just kind of known as one of the classic uh, ultra races in the US and the world. So um, yeah, it's always, it attracts, nowadays it attracts a pretty well-rounded um, elite field between definitely most elites are from the U.S., and then um, a few international elites will get invited as well. And uh, hopefully, it's always kind of the goal is to um, bring some excitement with that. And then I guess another exciting part of it, too, is uh, there's a couple qualifying races for it. So um, in general, some ultras in the sport are hard to get into uh, for people that just want to say Ellie Kipchoge wants to go run Western States next year. Pretty much he, he can't, as is right now, but theoretically, if he wanted to, he could pretty easily get in because you just have to finish top two at a 50-mile or 100K qualifying race, and there's five of them. So um, you can race, in, race your way in there, and a lot of newcomers uh, or elites that didn't get drawn in a lottery or anything like that, that's your, your way to get in. So there's a lot of exciting names and talent that come out of the, the qualifying races as well. And back in 2016, that's how I first got my entry into Western States was just racing in. Um, and then Western States was my first 100 miler back in 2016. So, um, yeah, they pretty much sum it up as a life in a day. And you go through a lot of highs and lows over a long time. And you got to be ready for the heat. Yeah, I think one of the most exciting things about the ultras is how dramatic they are and that you just see these enormous blow-ups where people are, you know, you don't see the equivalent in a track race or in a marathon. People might slow down a bit at the end and they hit a bit of a wall, but, you know, you've had personal experience with, I think it was 2017, you were leading, you were in course record, and then the heat and, uh, you know, GI issues just got to you and you couldn't keep anything down. Yeah, I think I was on course record pace through the first 100K and by uh, 30K later, I was, wasn't able to walk to the next aid station and uh, it was the hottest part of the race and yeah, just runners kept going past me and I just kept throwing up and then I'd try to get in colder water and I'd just start shivering right away and more or less uh, didn't really, um, yeah, you could say it wasn't one of my better days. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'd love for you to talk us through nutrition on a day like that. 
is that something that you've tried to research quite a lot and go into the science behind it or is it just you're going by feel what does it look like on race day well a lot of ultra running i think pushes the envelope um with um much past what studies really go to um it i i like studies are useful but not necessarily applicable i would say um they're good rules of thumb but not necessarily like laws or rules and then um there's a lot of individual uh preferences and abilities of what you can eat so just like running ability i would say there's an eating ability with ultra running too that has to be pretty important um for a race like Western States, it's a much different nutrition plan. So that race I've ran in about 14 and a half hours on a hot day during the day. And then my nutrition plan that I make for UTMB, uh, which is about a 20 hour race. It goes through, uh, typically colder mountain passes and you run through the night. Um, that race will have a absolutely completely different nutrition plan for the most part. Um, I find you want a little bit more hearty, uh, like I actually like cheese in that race a lot. Um, it's a bit heartier and kind of keeps you more full. Um, you get a bit hungry, but Western States is kind of cool. Cause I think you can ride the line of, uh, de it's definitely sugar based. Um, I try to put my calories in liquid. So like in my bottles, um, yeah, there's nothing like feeling really hot and you know you're coming up to an aid station and you just take a bottle full of just sugary water whether it's your morton or goo or cliff or whatever product you use and just dumping it right on your head because you you're, you're getting wet so much that any sugar like that will get rinsed off regardless so um it's kind of funny what i've yeah it, it also i guess reminds me of there's a clip of I think Jan Fredona or Fredona, I don't know, the Iron Man guy. And he's running through the Iron Man and he's just pouring Coke on himself and all sorts of stuff. Like, it's just so relatable because once it gets hot and you're just cooking, uh, you just will do anything. Um, but nutrition wise, I think trying to figure out how many calories you can do per hour is pretty important. Um, because then you can start figuring out how much you need to carry in between aid stations or in between seeing uh, your crew. So aid stations are kind of, they could be remote or they could be where your crew can go and then your crew is like your friends or family or someone helping you that brings your nutrition to the next spot for you to grab and go. So um, figuring out how much you need to carry is pretty important. So that's going to depend on your pace and how much you need to eat and how time-wise in between you have. So the faster you're moving, technically, the less you need to carry um, sometimes because what I cover in an hour, it might take other people two hours to cover. So um, they'll need more food for two hours than I do for just an hour. Um, but yeah, I would say for the most part, I say sugar is king. Um, but when I start projecting into further races, whether it's 24 hours or, uh, I mean, I guess I haven't really thought about anything too, too much further than that, but, uh, I think it would also apply, but, um, 
you need actual food uh, to just slam gels for 24 hours is really difficult. And yeah, after your 20th gel and only six hours, you, you start to feel pretty nauseous from them. So figuring out what's not going to cause nausea is pretty important. Yeah, and in the lead up to a race like Western States, you are doing massive days. I mean, I, I think I remember seeing quite a few 70K plus runs around the canyon and just around Flagstaff where you are. How much are you using nutrition on those training runs? Is that you're using it as a trial for the race? Some days. For the most part, I would say um, you can blow through your nutrition really quickly. Like, it's, whether you have a nutrition, like, whether you have a nutrition sponsor or you have to buy it, you still have to order it regardless. And it can be just a bit of a pain in the ass if you're just blowing through all of it right away um, or really expensive. So I would say typically on training days, I would flirt with a little less calories, maybe about 200 calories an hour. Um, but my effort level is a little more sustainable and a little easier, but you're going to prevent a bit of stomach aches and um, problems if you you just stay on the lower side of the calories. But on race day, um, it's a, a little bit of an experimentation while you're out there and kind of reading it, but you want to try to keep stuff um, towards the higher calorie side, even though it's a bit riskier because you, you don't want the stomach issues that can be really problematic. But, um, I find I try to flirt with how much my stomach can do. And at times during races, I have to back off for a half hour or so and just drink some water. But, um, yeah, if you don't eat, you're not going to have the energy. And if you don't have the energy, you're going to slow down. So, name of the game is try not to slow down. So uh, it, it's actually, it's a simple concept, but it gets pretty hard. Yeah, I mean, the bonks that you can see in the, the ultra races are just as dramatic as going the other way sometimes. Yeah, uh, but also the that... comebacks are pretty epic too. Of like, if it's just a bonk, you can sit down for a little bit and get some sugar back in you and all of a sudden you start feeling good and it can be, pretty crazy just turn of events that's again really exciting to watch <laughs> yeah and you mentioned having your team there crewing you um and i i think one cool aspect of the ultras that i find you know really appealing is the community engagement and how involved everyone is could could you speak a bit about what you think that more mainstream running could take from the ultra community and the trail scene? Um, I don't know. I don't know how much help you need to run the 10K or the marathon. Like a little bit, the marathon, you need bottles and stuff, but then there's so many more rules you have to deal with. And then you're, you're checking all your bottles in well beforehand to put at tables usually. So it's a bit different. It's more of a passive bystander where ultra running a lot of the fans like um are out there crewing either for athletes racing at the front or friends and family that are in the race um so yeah it kind of gives you more investment into who's out there which again i think it maybe just goes to 
it makes you pick a horse in the race. So if you have some stakes in the race, it's a lot more fun. So uh, basically pick a runner and root for him, whether it's the 10K or the marathon or Western States, because you'll, you'll follow them and you'll be interested in their story and their success or how things shake out regardless. I think even when I spectated Western or I spectated uh, UTMB from home last year, um, just as a little household, we all kind of made a top five predictions. And then I think we even made a who's going to DNF that day. So not finish the race of it's kind of a cruel bet, but um, it's kind of a funny bet too. Cause some of them are your friends and you're just like, Oh, no way. <laughs> but um, oh, go I ahead. Say, who, who did you bet for? Were you on the money? Um, I don't know. I think cause last year the, the favorites were probably Pau Capel won. Uh, Xavier was going for his fourth UTMB win, so he was probably the biggest favorite going into it. Um, and then you had a couple Americans like Zach Miller in the race uh, and stuff. But um, yeah, I think I think I got the most points in the house, but I I can't even remember everybody that was involved in uh, in the race offhand right now. Okay. Yeah. No worries. Um, what one thing that I've really enjoyed following along on your journey is seeing how you train with the the group, the Coconino Cowboys, who are a, a bunch of other guys that you that live in Flagstaff, where you're based. Could you tell us a bit more about how that group came about and how you guys feed off each other, and how you help each other through? Yeah, I think. Um... It probably started in 2016. Uh, I started to do some ultra running, and that's kind of why I moved to Flagstaff in 2015, uh, the year before. But um, I used to race a guy, uh, Tim Frericks, back in high school. We, we were about a year apart in high school, and we used to race on the track in Arizona against each other. And we were kind of reconnecting before a race called Lake Sonoma 50 Mile. And then Tim had a friend, Cody Reed, from the NAU track team that was in town and kind of liked to go explore and adventure a bit as well. And so we brought him out to crew for us for what was Tim Frerich's first ultra. And then um, I was hoping to kind of have a, a good breakthrough race. I think I finished fifth the year before at Lake Sonoma, and I was a bit disappointed with that and wanted to come back and try to win it. And uh, it ended up being a really fun road trip. We all uh, drove out together, camped along the way. Uh, I think we went out a little early and did some camping, but um, more or less, uh, Tim and I ended up taking first and second. We had done a lot of training together, and um, I think it kind of lit a fire under Cody a bit. And uh, like a month later, he signed up for Me Walk 100K and ended up going there he kind of had ups and downs but during that race but ended up uh winning that one and it was just like all of us kind of looking at each other like maybe we could do this and kind of inspiring each other to want to really push ourselves and and challenge this new sport and world of running that we were learning so much about um and kind of made it as like this maybe new rebel new kids sort of 
runners with a little bit of college background of running coming in and wanting to just in our mid twenties, like take things really seriously and try to train really hard for these events. Um, I think since then we've all had a bit of mixed results from it. Some races have gone really well and some we've, we've all had our fair share of, uh, not finishing or not, uh, or, um, not as good of a result as we would like, but, uh, it's been a pretty fun process. And along the way, um, we've had a couple guys that I think similarly fit in with our group as a group of friends, as in addition to wanting to do longer runs in the Canyon and stuff. So whether like from Jared Hazen to Eric Sensman and Steven Kirsch, um, have kind of found their way into training with us since then. And, um, so between all of us, typically we can find a group, um, to get together for long runs in the canyon and it kind of gets us out the door and doing pretty fun routes and uh kind of having a laugh about figuring it all out as we go um because i think none of us had experience in it and we didn't necessarily have um tons of mentors like showing us how to carry your nutrition or what to eat and this and that so a lot of it's figuring it out together and uh, so you get a lot of laughs about what, what works and what doesn't work. And, um, like the first couple times, Stephen Kirsch, like ran in the grand Canyon with us. I think we had to stop maybe 10 times every time on the way home. So he could throw out, throw up on the way home of just not doing well. Um, which is always funny to see your friend having to throw up on the side of the road. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of good memories that have come about from it. Yeah, cool. I mean, you're all self-coached. Um, I'm wondering, who do you turn to when you need advice uh, for your running and in life in general? Um, again, I think we bounce ideas off each other. Um, one of the reasons why I say I'm self-coached is a lot of my ideas, I, I think, are on the side of stupid and coaches wouldn't prescribe it. And I think there's stupid but at the same time it's just might be crazy enough to work sort of strategy um and i think it it's exciting to approach it that way and to try to think outside of the box whether it's the olympic trials marathon and trying to come at things from a volume-based perspective and the experience from running 50ks to 100 miles or in and doing some road ultra stuff and trying to just have that apply to marathon running in just a couple weeks um, is pretty exciting. Um, it's not the traditional sense of going about things. And uh, I think when we, we, we do a lot of soft teasers with throwing out ideas to each other. And I think depending on the laugh of reply you get from someone, it, it could be good or bad. And uh, it makes you kind of rethink of, is that a good idea or is this just stupid? Um, so yeah, I mean, even feeling out ideas of wanting to push 200 mile weeks, um, for a road marathon was definitely something where I think I was unanimously outvoted in the group that that was a pretty stupid idea, but it was also something where I go, well, I want to see what happens. And, um, so it, it'll have to be determined another day. Cause I didn't quite get there in this block. I think, 
one of the takeaways too, I think, is uh, maybe the importance of setting up a type of training camp for really big training blocks like that, because uh, social and social life and friends and family and uh, good things in your life that you want part of your life most of the time uh, become a bit more stressful when you're trying to get in so much running at that time. So um, simplifying life, I think, is important as a um, doing something before you try something like that. Okay, so I'm I'm wondering for you know trying something like that. I know you do a block up in the San Juan Mountains before UTMB, yeah. or you have in the past, and the mileage that you're doing day after day is just really phenomenal. And a a question that I have is like wh where do you get the energy and the motivation to run so far so fast and so often uh, I just um, imagine something like that would be s draining and require more recovery than what we see you doing yeah so I think there was in in 2018 I did a really really hard and awesome training block out in the sand once before UTMB and I I think I was doing 100 40, 150 mile weeks with 50,000 feet of vert and over 30 hours each week. Um, and it's, I was living at 10,300 feet and most of the climbing would go up to 13,000 feet a couple times during the route. So um, I would say the energy was not always there and you just force it. Uh, I would say that was an example of probably the biggest overtraining I've had in the last couple of years was um, definitely past overreaching and showed up with just nothing on race day, uh, which is a bit disappointing. But in retrospect, it was one of the coolest and badass blocks I've ever done, but I just don't have a lot to show for it. Um, I think I took away a lot of experience and a lot of uh, yeah, a, a lot of experience that I can use going forward, but um, didn't didn't get anything from that training block specifically uh, that year. Um, I'd like to try it again. I think one of the more difficult things with that when you're because it ended up being probably five to eight hours on the trails every single day um, is getting in enough food, and I think I ended up. I was camping the whole time, so I don't think I was getting in enough calories. And I, if you took before and after pictures, I was probably quite a few pounds skinnier by the end of it, um, just in my face and everywhere. Um, and I think at that point it was to a detriment. But um, so figuring out how to make things go a little smoother would help a lot. I, I want to try it again, but do it a little more comfortably um, with kind of how I set up how either I'm camping or um, lifestyle with it. And some of that goes to just making a plan to maybe eat dinner at a restaurant every night rather than cooking and cleaning all your dishes at a campsite. Um, simple things like that save a lot of time sometimes, but it's also a lot more expensive and more driving into town if you didn't go into town that day. So um, there's interesting dynamics with it. Um, when I was doing big volume for 
yeah, I, I think with the big volume stuff, you're, you're going to be depleted and you're going to find just a steady depleted state of, um, you, you kind of get a little numb of it, but uh, to get going is pretty difficult. Sometimes you sit around just drinking another cup of coffee before you get out the door. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. It's part of the overall process that you, that I think sometimes you have to push through. And I think for ultra running, it's worth it for something like a marathon. I don't necessarily think it's always worth it because again, you have to sustain a leg speed a lot of the times. And I know when I was getting up into my highest volume, even my strides started getting slower and I wasn't able to keep my strides as fast just because my legs were so heavy and so dead. So um, that became a bit of a problem that I made adjustments for in that block. But in ultra running, I think it's something that you embrace and because eventually in a race, your legs will get dead. So um, yeah, there's nothing like UTMB when you got 20 miles to go and like 2000 meters of climbing to go still. So, um, and basically I, I describe it as um, if you've ever tried rock climbing and your forearms get pumped out and you just can't grip even the biggest jugs and easiest rocks to grab, it's similar, but instead of your, your small forearms, it's your entire quads and stuff of like the idea of just pushing up a mountain is challenging, but then to run down a mountain is probably one of the more excruciating things. And it's kind of uh, learning to find the joy and uh, being okay with that, which kind of keeps you going and ignoring it. Um, which I think again gets to just there's a really important and different perspective for ultra running sometimes that's going to be advantageous than just pure talent because eventually everybody's going to tire out. So um, finding how to motivate yourself in those moments are really important. Uh, and how do you motivate yourself in those moments? <laughs> I think it always changes. Uh, at different times in your life, I think you can have different motivations. Uh, there's been times in my life from, I would say the most exciting time is probably when you're um, a dark horse and it's no one expects you to do this and you're just proving everyone wrong is pretty cool time. Um, other times there's things of like a fear of like everybody's watching you, Jim, like don't fuck up. Like uh, there, there's a lot of pressure that way, but it's a good pressure and um, almost a fun pressure of like, I mean, even going for my third Western States after the first year, making a wrong turn at mile 93, uh, when I was leading the race and then the next year coming in, um, blowing up and not finishing, didn't even make it 80 miles, um, coming in for a third time and just thinking that I was going to run a course record again. Uh, a lot of people just call that the definition of stupidity, but, um, yeah, it's the big dreams to just go do something that everybody doesn't think you're going to do or, um, yeah, it's just a fun goal and you put a lot of invested training into it. And when you're, when you're doing so much volume like that, uh, when you finally taper and you start feeling good for race day, theoretically, and hopefully, um, 
it, it provides a lot of uh, motivation in the race of like, well, what was that all for? Um, or comparatively to this day out in the canyon with all the cowboys, like, oh, we're, we're never going to be as screwed as that day on this race. So it's not so bad. Um, things like that. Uh, type 2 fun goes a long way. Uh, and I, I want to go back a bit in your timeline. So you you ran as a collegiate athlete at the Air Force Academy and had mm-hmm. some success there. What did the interim between graduating from college and your transition into running ultras in Flagstaff look like? So I guess uh, I kind of describe it as my... Um, quitting of running because so the air force academy is unique because it's a military academy so um you go straight into active duty military military after um service so uh i got put into uh what's called missileer um so the first year i was out in central coast california and was a bunch of training and learning how to do that job and then uh, the next year, two years, I was up in Montana um, in missile silos for the most part, um, sitting on basically watch and you have your finger on the button for nuclear weapons. But um, luckily, I kind of say like no one in the history of mankind's ever used ICBMs. So um, you can kind of use that as a tool of ignorance of it's not going to be the day that you're down in the job. So, uh, but it was a difficult and stressful time. And, um, I also made like mistakes life-wise from getting a DUI to getting caught up in a cheating scandal, which caused a lot of depression and, um, not a real great time in my life. So, um, being in Montana, they have a really great outdoor and wild wilderness kind of access. And so, trying to get to go see some of the cool spots in Montana in addition to learning that you can run hiking trails and then to accomplish routes a lot faster that that became a useful skill and to learning that there's a race scene on that to um, it just all kind of quickly became a very important outlet in my life during that time and uh learned about ultra running that I never knew before or never, never really knew. I think I knew of it, but was never interested in it and didn't really think I would ever care to do it. But as I got into it and got involved with it and kind of realized that I liked spending longer days out on trails, um, it became a lot more appealing. And um, so I ended up getting separated from the Air Force in 2015. Um, And so meanwhile, I say I was more of uh, a post-collegiate trying to learn how to enjoy running without being as all in as the NCA system is and life after running. So I consider like, um, I think I ran a couple half marathons up in Missoula and stuff. And I would say like, my off the couch PR in the half marathon is 108, but like I would consider it not seriously training, um, but I was running. Um, so that was a time where 
I was running, but it was also like three weeks of running, two weeks of no running off and on and trying to find a, a, a newer, healthier and sustainable relationship with running. And more or less that eventually um, when I separated from the Air Force turned into uh, probably back towards unhealthy relationship with, I, I don't know, I, I, it was a healthy relationship for me because I feel like it was a time where I needed the running, but um, an all in to running again. And um, I decided I wanted to move to Flagstaff and train at 7,000 feet. And um, just, I picked up a job at a local bike shop and started just logging a bunch of miles out in Flagstaff and entering races on my uh, on my own dime and traveling and uh, like taking some days off and stuff to drive out to races and go do this race or that race and kind of the regional area and um pretty much uh after about a year back up at altitude and trying to train more specifically for these long trail races i started having some success in early 2016 and it's kind of taken off and become more uh yeah, I would say I've thrown away any idea of balance with running and I've just gone more and more all into it. And uh, yeah, it's pretty consuming at this point. But uh, I would say I've also found I'm really happy with a relationship with running that's fully consuming. And even after this is done, uh, I'll have to go back to trying to figure out the balance of like post-consuming all-in thing of running to how am I going to find a good relationship with running in my fifties? And I, I'm still not sure what that will look like, but, um, Oh, probably just a lot less running when I'm in my fifties and older than that. But, um, trying to find time for other hobbies as well. And I think, uh, finding hobbies and whether it's cycling or I kind of jokingly say bowling, but, uh, something like that, I think is important. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd love to, for you to tell us a little bit more about how you think running helped you through that quite dark period after you finished up in the Air Force. Yeah, I think at first it became like uh, maybe something that I thought was more of a distraction from my career in the Air Force and wasn't important, but uh, I would say I was in a pretty low spot in life and struggling depression wise. So um, I was actually seeing a psychiatrist at the time and they recommended maybe embracing the running because I think they kind of saw that I was a bit happier when I came back and I said I did a race over the weekend or something um, that I just had something else going on in life to talk about that wasn't job related that basically job related stuff wasn't going well. So having something else became a bit more important and there was just something click of like uh I mean I doubt they said this but basically like you should just go all in on running I was like they didn't say that but that's more or less what I took away and I'm just like eureka I should just do that and um kind of because I knew my days were limited essentially so uh it became about planning what I wanted to do after the air force um and looking towards the future and uh of what I wanted to do um so whether it was a distraction or exercise helping release endorphins 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure what was going on, but for me, um, I at least had an outlet that made me a lot happier while I was doing it. And I think um, days that I would get out the door for a run were a lot better than days I didn't get out the door for a run um, with probably my mental health and uh, whether, like, I, I think it, if I got out the door for a four mile run, I at least had something somewhat, whether I thought it was enough miles or not, it was something positive um, rather than just having zero and uh, not knowing what to do with it. Um, so it, it became really easy to do as well because I could just do it from my doorstep as opposed to go anywhere or do anything. So, or see anyone, I could just do it by myself. So um, it also, I think became, uh, yeah, it, just important to make it part of my routine. Yeah, uh, and following along on Strava, it's amazing how few days you do take off. I think just in the lead up to the week before the trials, uh, I think I looked and it was like there was almost no days off in three months. Yeah, um, I usually take more days off. I think uh, for the most part, the majority of the block for the marathon, I was feeling pretty good. Um, in retrospect, maybe I should have taken some days off later, but, um, kind of one of my sayings has always been like, don't plan days off, just take days off when you need them. Um, so it goes to that, it, it goes back to my personal story of making sure I get out the door every day. But at the same time, I would say with knowing running and recovery and sometimes overdoing things, sometimes you definitely need the day off so that you can continue to get out the door in the future and it be fun. So um, I kind of say make every day, uh, like make tomorrow a day to go run but um, and always plan to go run. But I don't think it's necessarily as important to um, – stick to it when you truly are tired and it's really recognizing the difference between uh being like fatigued and needing the day off and then um i've just always found planned days off sometimes help and sometimes don't so uh i find it a lot more effective to take them off when when you feel they should be taken off rather than planned beforehand uh but then it goes back to making sure you get out every day so one of the other sayings that I developed during the time is just off days are contagious. So try not to make one day off day and the two off days and the three off days, because before you know it, you just took off a week and a half and now you're afraid to get back into running. So um, for me, it, it really helps to, yeah, try to, I, I, I would say at least I, I'm not concerned about having like a streak of running X number of days or keeping 10 years of running, of running every single day. Cause I, I think off days are really important, but, um, utilizing them as a important tool with timing, I think, um, is the most effective way of using them. Okay, sure. And ha what's your injury history? Like, I think I listened to another podcast where you were speaking and you were saying that you think the trails sort of help a bit in terms of water yeah. off injury. Yeah, so I think uh, I've talked with my college coach, um, Julie Benson, about this since then. And it, I think we both kind of just shrug and just 
have a little bit of a laugh about it because in college, more or less, I was probably considered pretty injury prone and I always struggled with calf tightness and Achilles injuries and stuff. Um, and I think between not doing anything in Trek spikes and like under 60 second, 400 sort of pace, um, and then the variation of what you get from climbing and descending. And um, I just have a lot, like typically in the past, I would struggle with overusage injuries, whether it was an IT band or Achilles. Um, and nowadays, I still get sorenesses occasionally, but for the most part, nothing really develops into time off injuries. And I think that's probably most attributable to the lack of just repetitive motion on a on a on a proper trail rather than because I would say you have to define a trail, um, which a lot of people have different de definitions of what a tr true trail is. But um, if you're just on a dirt road, you're going to get the same range of motion pretty much that you get on a road um, with maybe a little less pounding. But um, yeah, I think the the variation that you have on a single track trail uh, plays a pretty important factor of being able to stay healthy, um, at least in my case. Okay, and, and the volume that you're doing currently, which is massive, is that something that you've built up to gradually or have you always been doing high volume? I know that in um, high school you were cross-country state champion. Um, yeah, it, so... I think I've always been attracted to the high volume side of things. Um, I think in high school, I found some good success with it. Uh, as a high schooler, I kind of obsessed about hitting 90 miles a week. I, I have no real idea why 90 miles a week and not 100 miles a week or 80, but uh, 90 miles a week was kind of what I always wanted to hit since maybe I was 15, 16 years old. Um, and then in college, I kind of say um, Julie came from more of a mid-distance background, um, and she focused a lot more on quality workouts than I would prefer. Um, and I probably did 80 to 85 miles a week in college, um, but I would also kind of say I didn't really hit the success I would have hoped for in college. Um, but a lot of I would also say it might have been because we talked about it a lot and we agreed on things, but also butted, head on, butted heads on things about it in philosophy and uh, college because the Air Force Academy has a lot of stresses outside of running that you have to deal with. In addition to, um, I grew up at pretty close to sea level and the Academy is up at 7,200 feet or uh, 2,200 meters. Um, so adjusting to altitude especially the first year was really difficult um and just dealing with the stresses so i would say my time at the air force academy maybe gives me more to talk about and more relatability between people that train with a job or a career or kids because you're balancing so many other stresses that um also fatigue you um and it's more about finding probably an optimal stress volume rather than an optimal volume or time um, because depending on what you have going on in your job or your life um, it can vary of maybe what might be optimal for your mileage 
So um, being a pretty stressful school, uh, I would say, um, yeah, I, I ended up running less miles in college than I did in high school typically. So in retrospect, that was always kind of a bit of a regret that I never really got to get to higher volume in college. Um, but when I started doing trail running and um, basically self-coaching, it just went to, I've always wanted to do high volume. Let's just feed it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think before I started doing trail running, I might have broken 100 miles in a week twice. I think once in high school and once in college. And I think I got scolded both times for running that much. So, um, but one of the main things in trail running is just uh, pushing the volume side of things. I think I can still maintain a pretty good quality of training um, at 120 miles a week. Um, once I get up to, which is just under 200K a week, um, once I get up to 140 miles a week, I think I start getting into maybe a ticking time bomb of how long I can sustain really good quality. So uh, the amount that I'm over 120, I kind of limit. And then before I dip down, but once you start dipping down, I try to time it with the taper of a race. So um, right when I think you start feeling a bit overreached is hopefully when you start tapering. And that kind of goes to finding that ebb and flow of that eight to 10 week balance of building up enough, but then Right when so so you're never really sustaining tons and tons of volume and tons of quality all at the same time for a month or two on end. Uh, it needs to be about finding the ebb and flow of the balance of the two. I would say um, at least that's the way I like doing it. Um, and a couple times during the year, I'll try to really push that for some of the biggest races, which also plays into some of the best successes I've had and some of the worst failures I've had on uh, race day, because I think um, I'm really trying to push the boundary with what I'm trying to do. And whether it's the amount of climbing I did in the San Juans before UTMB or um, the amount of volume I did before the US marathon trials, like um, just trying to swing big and hard for the fences. So, uh, I think the the failures I I don't feel too beat up from, um, but the optimism to have really big successes get me really excited, and I think help keep me getting out the door every day. Which again just goes back to several years ago. I found that as a very important kind of crucial thing I need to do, and so dreaming big, training big, and getting excited about things really helps me just the overall process, bring it together. Yeah, cool. I mean, now that you're self-coached um, and completely off the leash with no one to scold you go about going too far, have you found it difficult transitioning from a military background where it was so regimented, I'm assuming, to having yeah. complete reign over what you're doing? Um, I think in retrospect, I feel, well, I don't know. Uh, I think there's different parts of my personality that do well in, in a very strict regimented schedule and parts of my personality that also do really well in 
such a laissez-faire. I think there's also, um, I'm not as efficient with time management nowadays as I was, um, but I also feel like my stress levels are really low, which helped me recover well and train harder, but um, I'm pretty unproductive outside of training. So uh, it's almost amusing. Um, for me, I find it as a, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the best thing to do with my time. And it kind of goes to how long you can do this for. And just wanting to take advantage of the situation where I'm at and enjoy it, not not make it harder or worse than it needs to be. Um, I don't know. I, I would prefer this lifestyle over the military lifestyle for sure. Uh, the other part of it might be um, kind of realizing that my personality might not have meshed with the military as well as I once thought it might have or did, um, which I think might play into um, not being able to get a bit more volume in more naturally in college and and not hitting the times that I would have hoped I would have ran in college. So um, I, I think, yeah, it, it causes a little more stress that way. And the stress, I think, was causing some injuries. So um, taking a lot of that away, I think, has also been a big factor in staying healthy because basically the last three, five years, I've been pretty injury or injury free um, and been able to just put together really good blocks after really good blocks. And um, it's it's definitely taken me to, to new levels of my own running and it's pretty exciting. Yeah, no, it has been really exciting to watch. Uh, I'm just wondering, what was it that drew you to the Air Force Academy? Um, I think in high school, I. I might have thought that uh, it was probably the only time in my life that I would have an opportunity to serve in the military, and I wasn't ever going to go back and do that. And so it was a choice I was open to after high school to, to go do. Um, it's a really good college. And then I would say I also really connected with the coach that recruited me there, um, John Hayes, who ended up leaving after like a month or two my freshman year. Um, and then a couple months later, uh, Julie Benson came in uh, towards the end of my first semester there. So um, I, I would say co like college coaches that I talked to that were more mid-distance oriented, pretty much I kind of closed the book and didn't talk to again because uh, I really was intrigued in higher volume stuff. And I think um, like one of the things that, uh, I think John and I were excited about was he kind of realized I was a pretty good workhorse and more or less, uh, we're either going to win a national title or pretty much break you down trying. And I was really excited about that idea. Um, it goes to, I think, how I train for ultras a lot of the time of some of the times I show up and I'm a little broken down on race day, but other times I, I've definitely nailed really great days and um, I've been really proud and excited for those days. Um, so I think bonding with him in a lot of ways was uh, an initial draw, but I also kind of said if 
I didn't like the coach that came in. I would I was gonna leave, and I think my next two three semesters I still applied to some other colleges to transfer uh, to. But there's a big maybe it's part of my personality that helps me with ultra running of like stubbornness and not quitting because there's a big uh, pressure at the school that if you transfer or um, decide to go to a different college or do something else in your life, then go, then stay and stick it out that you're a quitter and you couldn't make it. And I guess there's a part of that where um, I didn't want to be defined by that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would say it was an interesting dynamic. I would say I was still a bit younger, but at the end of the day, I think it's kind of a, a cool time in my running life that I wouldn't have done as much quality uh, harder track workouts than I did in that phase of my life. Um, I think Julie really pushed a lot of my leg speed in college because I'm not, I'm not ever going to win a kick uh, all the way back to high school and um, even worse nowadays. And uh, yeah, I got down to running like under 230 for a thousand and like 403, 404 for a mile. So, um, I probably wouldn't have gotten much faster in college than that, but um, at another college, I probably would have ended up being more of a 5K, 10K specialist and going to longer distances earlier. Yeah, okay. And, and is that speed track background quite unique within the ultra world? Yeah. Um, I would say... I mean, even if you get much faster college times, most people try pursuing a track or road profession um, rather than just going straight into ultras. And when you see that sort of leg speed in ultras, it's usually after people have kind of hit their prime athletic years. So it's not quite fair, I would say. Um, there's definitely been more people in their young 20s to late 20s that have started picking up ultra running. Um, but I think there's definitely an advantage to the people with a bit of leg speed that go all into ultra running compared to really talented guys that dabble in ultra running. I think the ones that dabble in ultra running have extremely mixed results of a lot of disappointments, um, thinking that it's going to be easier or they're going to do a lot better than or get more attention than what they're getting. Um, the, I think there's a big difference, just like with the Coconino Cowboys and us, like having a group of guys that I would say are more on the all in. So the ultra running side of things, I think we see a lot better success than a 211 marathoner that might dabble in ultra running because um probably the races that they choose or um there's i guess certain types of this certain aspects of the sport where uh you're not going to get this like huge like oh they're the greatest ultra runner ever now because they just won a 50k road race of like well it's not really the biggest event that we have like you kind of got to go mix it up in the big ultras which now your skill set really doesn't quite suit yourself for that and oh by the way it's like you have to have a five pound pack and a headlight and did you bring your sandwich with you like 
and a marathon or I mean just the idea of running with a handheld bottle seemed ridiculous in college so um now that that's a a typical run when you're training for an ultra during the summer it's kind of funny and um yeah I, I think there's becoming especially I maybe hope to think that I'm helping maybe bridge the gap between the two by trying to go back and forth a little bit um of at least bringing some ultra interest into watching the marathon a little more and likewise some track or marathoners or especially young track and marathoners coming into ultra running maybe a little sooner than they would have thought just because they can see someone having some success and um basically a career in running like it's a it's not a traditional path but it's also a way of doing something that you love for more time in your life if you can find some success in it so uh I think other people get inspired by it as well and I think you'll continue to see the sport still grow and develop and mature and get more competitive but um it's still got a long ways to go to catch up to some of the other running events and do you think that the corporatization that we're seeing in ultra racing is contributing to that? I know some events have been taken over by Ironman. You're seeing more sponsorship in these events. Um, I think it can be more appealing for maybe top level talent to look at it because, um, yeah, I mean, if you can win a major marathon, you make so much more money than you probably than you would in uh, ultra running that it's not necessarily worth it still. But um, yeah, who knows? Like, say, it, but it's all good and bad because I guess with the growth, you also lose a lot of the grassroots side of the ultra running that is what was appealing to so many people when they first started it and that you can just show up and it's kind of, uh, you can just talk to anyone there and people drink beer after the race and hang out at basically a barbecue of like 50 to 100 people. So there's really appealing sides of that. So <clears throat> luckily I think the sport is big enough and has room to grow for both like corporatization of it and also keeping more of a grassroots side of it. Um, but it's pretty tricky getting both of them in the same sport. Um, cause even if like myself or Killian or someone really big in the sport does some smaller races and you do it a couple times, all of a sudden more and more people are going to be interested in that race and you might end up changing the culture of a race if you're, you're doing too much with it. And for some people, they like seeing a race get a lot bigger, but for other people, there's a bit of disappointment that the race isn't what it was. Um, and I think probably a race in the U.S. that you see struggle the most with that is probably Hard Rock um, because it's got a really cool grassroots side of it. But at the same time, with Killian running it the last, well, not last year, but uh, for four years in a row and getting athletes like Francois lining up to, to do it and Xavier um, you see a lot of attention with it. So it has potential to be an American UTMB, but that was never anyone's intent that created the race and they don't want it to be that. They still call it a run, not a race. And um, there's a lot of values that they hold on to, which 
conflicts with people wanting it to be the biggest, greatest event ever. But to them, it's it's more important to to experience running the race how it is, not how it could be. So um, they, they've held on to things uh, probably more tightly than other races. Yeah, I, I think the really, I guess, holistic approach to running is one thing that I've found really interesting with the ultras like you see these uh, a lot of guys are very much purists and for them it's about spending so much time out in the mountains and the transformations that they go through in those long events not just about winning yeah uh and i think you get a lot more of those um stories and uh almost growths out there from the people winning the race to the people at the the very last finishers um people go through a lot out there in such a long race that i think unites the sport in a different way where i would say the difference between what a 20 or a 210 marathoner compared to like their experience in the marathon is quite different than a five-hour marathoner i would say but the difference between a 14-hour finisher at Western States and a 30-hour finisher at Western States, I would say there's a lot more similarities and stories that you can tell um, between those two than a two-hour and a five-hour marathoner. Um, it's quite different, and just the training that you put into it is quite different, where everybody's got to have pretty long days of training and deal with some heat and uh but also a 30-hour finisher is going to have a couple more sunrises than the 14-hour finisher, which so they, they arguably have better stories than, than the winner of the race. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, one other thing I want to ask you is that you know some elites or sub-elite guys in the marathon have tried, and uh, but very few have succeeded in making a smooth transition to ultras. Are there certain attributes in runners that you think help them transfer their skills onto the trails and the ultra distance? Yeah, so sometimes when I see people run on trails, I kind of scratch my head of like, I I don't understand why it's not translating as well. Once a good runner on the roads gets on a trail and all of a sudden, like you see him like tippy-toeing around all the rocks and you're just a little confused by it. I don't necessarily have a great answer for that, but I think in general, people that are volume-based, that helps with transitioning. Um, People that like doing a long run, that like doing the long tempos, um, that like running climbing, that like climbing I think is good. Uh, But I would also say climbing is kind of more American and Australian world of ultra running where the Europeans just dominate descending. And when you do the two, it's actually a lot faster to probably be a faster descender than it is a climber, which is kind of counterintuitive to at least American running, because I think in American running, you see who's the fittest by running to the top. But then if you do an up and down run, uh, you don't have to be the first one to the top and you can win by 10 minutes on on the way back down, which is pretty interesting. So being open to, to learning and bombing on descents, I think sometimes you see some people with some skiing experience be able to pick really good lines down really steep descending. Um, and then I think it's really important to go back into the, instead of dabbling and 
like people wanting to be a marathoner and an ultra runner. I think it's more important to pick between the two. Um, yeah, I would say even though I did a marathon, I'm, I'm never going to consider myself a marathoner. Uh, I, I don't think it was a, I think to be a marathoner, you need to be committed for a couple of years and to really try a process and you work down your PR. But um, in, in ultra running, I think the training's different enough than a marathon that if you're going to do some of the true ultra races, like I, there are a lot of ultras out there that marathoners can completely dominate. And, but those will also be a lot of the races where I would say the ultra community just kind of shrugs and just goes, it's a flash in the pan. We, we don't care as much. So, because it's not a full commitment into the sport. So you don't see many top level marathoners dabble in a hundred mile on a whim. And it's much more interesting to see that transition than it is for a marathoner to dabble in a 50k road or even comrades. Um, it's a much easier transition. It would be much more exciting for a top level marathoner to do Western States or UTMB rather than uh, comrades. I have, it goes back to story and maybe picking the more drastic difference, which is exciting. Um, it shows a different skill set. But uh, so wanting to take on different challenges, I think, is pretty respectable in ultras and pretty fun. Um, yeah, that that versatility is something that is so valued in the ultra world, and it's been what's a part of what has been so impressive with your running, going from the Western states and then qualifying in the half marathon. Um, you, you say, you know, to do well, you have to go all in, but a lot of listeners, they, you know, probably have a full-time job, they're raising okay. children. Okay, so I, I wouldn't they... say all in as far as training. I mean, all in as pretty early into the trail running thing, I defi- I probably um, identified as an ultra runner. Mm-hmm. Maybe all in as, I guess, saying give up an identity as a track runner, like the training process to, to train for an ultra, not necessarily volume or time or how much you're, you're putting into it. I would say um, the type of training, like make some time to go out for a four or five hour run on the trails on the weekend once a month. Like whether you have a full-time job or not, you can probably find a way to do that somehow or Um, there's also things called like backyard ultras that are even doing like virtual stuff through the coronavirus stuff that, uh, are pretty disgusting. And that's a really cool mentality with just like the idea is every hour you got to run a 4.1 mile loop and it's not very fast, but basically you don't get sleep and eventually sleep deprivation combined with why you're doing it combined with stubbornness and, the will not to quit is really interesting. And um, so it's a mentality of being all in as an ultra runner and identifying as an ultra runner that I think is extremely beneficial rather than I'm a marathoner and I'm better at running. So I'm going to win this ultra. And all of a sudden you, you run into a, a couple of snags during your race. And I think you can lose your why you're doing it a lot easier and you're not as motivated to keep pushing through such a long race. 
Okay, what would you say is your why? Um, I I would say it's changed. I, it all started with it becoming my outlet and this is what I want to do. Um, now I would say this is more become how I define myself and this is what I want to do and what I want to be good at and uh, what I w enjoy. So almost... Um, it could be pride. It could be, uh, I, I like thinking that, uh, people that are supporting me, I, I make everyone else, whether, um, it's friends and family or whether it's race directors that gave me a chance in the very beginning that gave me an entry or put me up in some housing that I, that really helped me out early. Um, I knew that those race directors would get a lot more benefit if I did well and, or like setting a course record, lots of people get happy when that happens. So um, it's getting a lot of excitement and proving people right, I think is a really great and healthy motivation, but there's also sometimes the fun motivation to also prove the naysayers wrong, um, which can also be a why, but I don't think it's quite as strong. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think a why is constantly evolving, but, uh, for each race, it can be a little different. Okay, sure. Uh, I mean, you you have the luxury of running full-time. I mean, a lot of people would look upon it as a luxury. And I, I just want to know, what would your advice be to someone in that position where they do have a full-time job and they are raising kids and they want to go about preparing for, say, a 100-kilometer race and you know, test themselves in the ultra world? Yeah, um, I think it goes back to a bit of stress balance. Um, find the level of training that is manageable for you um, and then pick a couple key long runs or um, key quote-unquote workouts, but really like routes that would be challenging and specific for the race you're looking at um, and utilizing those like six weeks before a race uh, starting then and trying to hit one or two a week um, or a lot of people try to do back-to-back -back long runs as a effective tool to kind of mimic some of the ultra running so when you go to do your second long run the next day your legs feel pretty terrible so um, that can be a good tool some other people think that that's just ridiculous and you don't need to do it um, I think it's a good mimic of sometimes how you feel in races, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but uh, just looking to challenge yourself. And um, at the end of the day, you got to try to make yourself better. So um, I think if you, if everybody keeps finding improvement, then um, you'll eventually keep moving up to, to have bigger goals and faster times. So um, a lot of times that's the best you can ask for. Yeah, and I, I think uh, obviously this will depend on everyone's base going into something like this. But how how long would you suggest is a minimum that people should be trying to concentrate on transitioning? Um, I think it's totally different for people. Uh, it kind of depends on background. I, I find some of the more fascinating stories coming from people from backpacking backgrounds and through hiking. I think they bring in a really good perspective that's very different than a track runner. Um, and it kind of depends on what races you want to do and 
uh, I don't know. I, I think it's all a learning process and I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to start off a little over your head because I think you can learn a lot from that too and it, just stick with it and stick to it and, and commit to being an ultra runner for a longer period of time. Don't uh, half-ass it and be a flash in the pan. I think sticking with it is very important. So regardless how long that is, and usually people start off in the 50K range and increasing challenging trails and stuff. Okay. Uh, and so I want to ask you, I think we're pretty much running out of time or coming to the end, but... Yeah, I think where... I need to grab a charger real quick too. <laughs> well, I've, I've been watching, it's down to 1%. So oh, okay. maybe I go yeah. grab that real quick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll just edit okay? this out. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Cool. Um, so Jim, you speak about committing to it long-term and you've spoken a bit before about longevity in the sport. Um, I, I want to ask where, where to from here, where do you see yourself going in the sport? Is it looking like you'll, you know, do you see yourself continuing to try and push the boundaries in the hundred mile and shave more time off courses like Western States? Or do you think you'll be moving yeah. to longer uh, events? Like uh, people might not know about them, but there's events like you know Moab 240 and all those others. What what interests you coming up? Um, I I don't think I've quite caught my interest on the 200 mile races as of this point, but um, I think they become a little too much hiking, um, flat hiking too. I think something like Tour de Gion, something like that, but the tour in Italy is a lot more interesting and it's a much older, like basically 200 mile race, 300K, um, that has like 66,000 feet or uh, just something ridiculous as far as climbing. It, um, that would be a bit more interesting because it's out in Italy and it's like really pretty and just drastic mountains that you're climbing up and down the entire time. And it's really challenging. Um, that would be a lot more inspiring than, uh, something like Moab. Moab's pretty, but it also like, um, I'm from the Southwest in the U S so it's maybe I'm a little more like used to red rock stuff. Uh, so, yeah, not, not as much there. Um, I think for me, I, I see, I don't really want to do fast marathon training forever. So um, trying to knock out things like a 100K road race and comrades I see as kind of a shortening window of opportunity over the next couple of years. So those are things I want to focus out focus on for like just career wise of what I'd like to accomplish before uh, I'm done. But I would say where I find the most enjoyment and passion for as far as training and racing would be uh, right around that hundred mile mountainous stuff. So those sort of UTMB, Wasatch 100, Hard Rock, um, kind of burly long hundreds. Um, I think is a lot more fun to be in. I think uh, it's pretty challenging experiences and it's long enough for me. 
Um, I, I would say that's where I see myself going towards is just a bit more burly hundreds uh, for the majority of my 30s. I think it's a good spot and age that is I can still be really competitive in. Um, whereas comrades, I, I don't know how many more years I could be competitive at. So I would hope to have uh, my best day and where that kind of lands me, I'm not necessarily sure. I think South Africans are really, really good at that race and they put a lot of time and energy into that. And I think they have extremely good motivation at that race specifically, which again, I think motivation is really important, um, which makes it difficult for a foreigner to win. But uh, I'd like to at least try winning that um, in the next couple of years. Yeah, uh, what's the exact distance for comrades? Um, it can change a little bit. So they say it's 86 to 90 kilometers. Okay. And then, and then they switch the direction. Days. Yeah, so there's uphill years and downhill years. This year um, is or was supposed to be a downhill year. And then next year is the 100th anniversary from the first comrades ran. So... They're going to be the first comrades was a down year, so they'll be doing they'll repeat a down year next year, and then uh, in 2022 they'll go up. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure what the status is of what's going to happen to the race this year. It's a race with 27,000 people in June, so um, from my perspective, it's I don't think it's going to happen in June at least. So. Um, that goes to kind of hedging my bets of finding a more sustainable, fun level of training right now, rather than completely ramping up for a June race, because I probably think uh, if there are races later in the year, they'll probably be more regional than international um, or even national races. I think staying more regional this year might end up being the, the right thing to do. Yeah, I think it's going to be the theme of the year. Um, I, I, currently, South Africa is in one of the strictest lockdowns of any yeah. countries. I've got, you know, I, I actually just rode the Comrades course, or quite a lot of it, in uh, December. And a lot of my friends there are, you know, completely locked down. So I can't imagine the race going forward at this point. Uh, I, I just want to ask you, you say that, you know, training for something on the trails generally is much more enjoyable and a more specific speed oriented race like comrades or 100k on road involves a lot more sessions that are more structured and aren't necessarily so yeah. enjoyable what what is it that then makes you want to go and run those races and do those blocks that you might not enjoy so much I would say there are people that have set the bar extremely high in that side of the sport. And I think having the bar so challenging and so high is really interesting to me. And um, at least challenging myself in the highest levels of competition in ultra running, I think is important for um, what I want to do. So the fact that Comrades is looked at as the biggest most prestigious ultra in the world um i think is really interesting to me but at the same time i would say ultra running's evolved a lot especially in the last 20 years that 
probably prestige might have shifted towards trail running in the ultra world rather than back in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Uh, road running used to be the end all for ultra running, a lot more so. And trail running was more the 200 mile sort of thing. Um, but I, I would say trail running's taken off a lot recently. And um, it, it, yeah, you look at UTMB, UTMB is a really big and prestigious event and Western States is really big and prestigious. Um, actually, not really big. It's really small and really prestigious. But I would say from an elite level, um, there's you, people can get into the race if, but you're not going to get into it tomorrow, sort of thing. You you have to make a little bit of a plan, and basically any elite could get into it. I would say. Um, so I I think it's a bad argument when people make that. But um, finding the race, and then again, the 100K being one of the most challenging marks in ultra running I think is really interesting um and the same thing about the 24 hours that Jonas Chorus set um a while back that that one's considered one of the hardest uh records in ultra running as well so um I see attempting that in the future in addition even though the idea of running on a track for 24 hours doesn't interest me at all um I think just trying things that are really challenging and pushing yourself to to things that, yeah, I, I don't know, just trying to reach a level that no one else has gotten to or that I've never gotten to. Or um, It's really interesting when people say something's untouchable that, well, no, it's not. Like, I think really dedicated people can, can do a lot of extraordinary things and, um, yeah, all records are meant to be broken. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been awesome to watch you pushing the envelope and climbing up to that high bar. And we look forward to watching you attack some more of those records in the future. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down today and sharing everything with us. It's been a really interesting insight for listeners and I think just into the ultra world in general and how you train and live your life. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun talking.